Lord God, I thank you for our chance to gather together and, and worship you with all our hearts. And right now, as we come around your word, God, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord God, I know you're speaking to me just as, you, as much as you're speaking to those who are here. Lord, I pray that you would use me as your vessel to speak your word in season, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but who's noticed a difference in church since our six weeks of prayer and fasting? Just a freedom and a liberty like never before. And people have asked me over the weeks since, what did you get out of the six weeks of prayer and fasting? And I'm like, I didn't really get much, but I didn't really expect much. The reason I wanted to do six weeks of prayer and fasting was because I really wanted our church to engage in prayer really wanted us to begin to really understand the importance of prayer. And it was amazing. You guys were incredible in the way you did that. All, all joined in and, and were a part of it. And, and so for me personally, I wasn't expecting anything. But after the six weeks had happened, it was amazing what God began to do in my life personally. He began to open my eyes to some stuff. I don't know if you realized the last time, I preached, or the last time, a couple of times I preached, I preached about the God of great expenditure. Anyone remember? And God, our God is a generous God. Isn't that right? He is a lavishly, extravagantly generous God. And I shared about how Jesus laid down, he was so generous to lay down his divine privileges. He laid them down. He, when he became a man, he laid his divine privileges down. It was an amazing act of generosity by him. And as I, as I preached that, it was from, for me, it was a, a new appreciation of Jesus. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we started um, a new uh, book in our, our Friday morning devotions here at church. Juanita and James and I get together and we do devotions. Sometimes some other people join us as well, which is pretty cool. But I really felt we should do the book of Hebrews. Anyone love the book of Hebrews? Yeah, I won't tell any dad jokes, but Hebrews tell us that God loves coffee, because Hebrews, <laughs> do you like that? You on that? You like that, Jolene? That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, let's move on. You got it, yes. Bit of a late, bit of a late take there by Mary. But we started the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is, and I'm going to talk about Hebrews tonight. I want to share from Hebrews. But the, the great thing um, about Hebrews is that it's all about the supremacy of Jesus. It's all about the preeminence and the, the amazingness of Jesus. And as I've been reading it, it's just renewed something in my heart about how amazing Jesus is, how incredible he is. And so tonight, I want to share about that. You know, I was going through my my sermons that I've done at the Port Church, and I don't think I've actually preached on this topic fully ever before. Um, because tonight I want to just preach about Jesus. Anyone happy about that? I'm not going to preach about anything else but Jesus. And it's really cool when I was preparing, I was going through some commentaries, and I, I read about how Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers the world has ever known, he is an amazing preacher, preached week in, week out to over 6,000 people in the 1800s. Without a PA system or a microphone, he would preach to these people. 
amazing man, and he preached amazing sermons. And he preached on the text I'm going to preach from tonight, and he stood up in front of his church back in 1882, and he made this statement. He said to his church, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. And I would stand in front of you and declare the same. I have nothing to preach to you, church, tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. Because the world is asking us all the time, and maybe you ask this question, who is Jesus? What makes Jesus so important? Why should I believe in Jesus? And what makes Jesus different from any other religious leader? What makes him different from Buddha and all the other religions that are around the place? Well, these are all really good questions. And these are the type of questions that the people, the writer of the Hebrews was writing to. They were Christian Jews, these people called Hebrews. They were Christian Jews. And they were all asking these types of questions because they had become Christians, but they discovered that being a Christian in in Israel at that time, as Jewish Christians, it was hard. It wasn't easy. That they experienced a lot of persecution. Anyone else out there experienced persecution persecution for being a Christian? That your family and different people say, why would you want to go to church? Why would you want to be a Christian? Well, that's what these people were experiencing. And they were wondering, is Jesus really who they say he is? They were beginning, it actually says in Hebrews, don't drift away because they were beginning to drift away from their faith. They were beginning to doubt whether Jesus was really God. They were wondering if the price to pay for their Christianity was worth it. And they were even considering that Jesus was just another prophet, like all the prophets that had come before. So it's really interesting when you read Hebrews, the first chapter, it's an epistle. An epistle means a letter. A lot of the New Testament are letters, a letter from Paul to the Corinthians, a letter from Paul to the Ephesians and so forth. But this is a, an epistle, a letter to the Hebrews. Now it's really interesting, the opening of it, there's no introduction. So in, in, if you read Ephesians, it will say, I, Paul, am writing to the church in Ephesus. Or uh, in Corinthians, I'm right, this is Paul writing. But we don't know who the author is. Because at the beginning of Hebrews... The author starts it off straight, straight away. He doesn't muck around. There's no introductions. It's not say, this is me writing to you. He says, straight out of, the, out of the box, he goes, I declare this straight up. And uh, we're going to read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1, which say what he is wanting to declare to these people who are struggling with their faith. He says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. You see, this passage straight up, he declares straight away that Jesus is God's final and finest revelation. In other words, what he's saying is that God doesn't need to reveal 
himself anymore, and especially by old means like through prophets, because everything we need to know about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. We don't need to find out anything more about God because Jesus is everything we need to know about God. Now Jesus himself made these same kind of statements when he was here on earth. It's really important to us for us to understand because Jesus says in John 10:30 he made this statement. He said very clearly, "I and the Father are one." Now you go, "Oh, that's not that big a statement." Well, you do realize it was a really big statement because after he made this statement, the people around him, the Jews around him, began to pick up stones off the ground, the Bible says, and were ready to stone him for blasphemy. Because to the Jews, only God was one. No one else was one. There was only one that was one, and that was God. And when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he was declaring literally that he is God. That's why they picked up stones and wanted to kill him because they thought he was blaspheming. He, Jesus didn't do this once. He did it again a couple of chapters later in John 12.45 when he says, He who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. This is, this is groundbreaking for them because what he is simply saying is to see Jesus is to see God. There is an... There is an amazing exchange between Jesus and his disciples in a couple of chapters on in John 14. This is the chapter where he says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Amen? We all know that. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. But if you read on a little bit, he has this really interesting exchange with his disciples where he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him talking about himself. Now, the disciples are a little bit thick. They're not too bright. And so one of them stands up, Philip. He says, and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. So Jesus is going, you've seen the Father. And he's going, well, can't you show us? Make him appear here somewhere. And then Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long? You can see him go, my, rolling his eyes. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? And then he says this powerful statement, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, what he is saying is that if you want to hear what God says, then listen to Jesus. Or if you want to see what God does, then watch Jesus. Because in another part of the Bible, it describes Jesus and it gives him the name Emmanuel. Anyone know what Emmanuel is? God with us. And this is an important thing because the writer of the Hebrews is trying to get across this concept and this idea to those people who are wondering, is Jesus that important? Is he just another prophet? No, the writer of the Hebrews is wanting us to know straight away that Jesus is God. He's not just another man. He deserves all our commitment and dedication because he is God. Now, I'm going to want to give you a few uh, reasons why Jesus is God from that passage I just gave you in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm not going to give you them all because there's quite a few there, but I want to just give you three 
to help us understand why Jesus is so important. The first thing we learn about Jesus in that passage is that Jesus is the creator. And this is really important because it says, And through the Son, He, God, created the world. What this does in that statement, it makes it clear that Jesus existed before he was a man here on earth. Jesus was not a creation of God because he was at the creation of all things, both spiritual and physical. Because Jesus and the Father are one, the Father, the Bible tells us, created the world through Jesus. A couple of passages to clarify this is, John 1, three, where it says, All things, not just some things, but all things, came into being through him, that is Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then in Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, For in him all things were created, Jesus it's talking about, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been, been created through him and for him. This is so clear that what God is saying is that Jesus is not just a man. He is God. Because he was there at the beginning of creation of all things. He is not a creation of God. He is God. That's why he is the great revelation of God. That's why we don't have to look any further than Jesus, because Jesus is God's greatest revelation of himself. The second thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is the sustainer. Does that sound good? It's pretty important in this day and age, sustaining. But it says, and he, Jesus, sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Now this word sustain means to uphold. And in other translations, it talks about Jesus upholding all things or to carry them along and moving them along to their objective or to their goal. Now, Jesus is not just the kind of creator who creates something and then leaves it alone. This is important for us to understand because Jesus is continually involved in all parts of creation. You see, they, they talk about the fact that the things that Jesus created, he now sustains or conserves or holds them together. It's a passage in Colossians 1.17 that says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is so important. This is, this is critical because we need to understand that the reason our earth is still spinning as it is, without spinning out of orbit and all of that stuff, is because God is holding it in place. The reason the earth hasn't degraded to this point because of sin and, and been destroyed to this point is because Jesus is withholding it, because Jesus has a plan. And This is so important for us to understand as Christians because it gives us a fresh confidence. Who knows we live in a world where there is a lot of turmoil, there is a lot of stuff going on that, I don't know about you, but it, it causes anxiety. Isn't that right? You turn on the news and you look at Donald Trump and you look at the Chinese government and the gear that's going on between those two and you think, what's going to happen? 
Anything's possible. Or you look at the fact that Saudi Arabia, our petrol prices are going up because Saudi Arabia is being attacked by covertly by Iran and stuff like that. And you go, what on earth is happening in our world? We've got our youth here tonight, and which is awesome. But we had a whole bunch of young people protesting in the city, which is cool, about climate change and saying, you know, we're worried about the future of our planet and we, we want you adults to do something about it. What's going on? We don't want to be inherit a, a terrible creation in the future. And that good on them for doing that, for standing up. But the fact is, we need to understand that God has placed us to be good stewards in our world, but we also need to trust that God has an ultimate plan. And that God will see that plan to fruition and he will bring it to pass because he is in control. No matter how dark it looks, he is the sustainer. He is the one that sustains the world as it is. And that he will bring it to where it needs to be at the right time and at the right place. The Bible teaches us really clearly that when God starts something, he finishes it. He brings it to pass. And this is the important thing that we need to understand is that yes he does that in the big stuff and that we can know that even though it looks terrible that we do our bit but God will do the most and he will bring it to pass as it should. But even in our everyday lives God wants to sustain you. He wants to be with you. He wants to help you with your problems and your difficulties and those challenges you're going through. That Jesus is the sustainer. He wants to sustain you and to keep you and to bring you through. And what he has started in you, he will complete. No matter how dark it looks sometimes. No matter what the doctor's report says. No matter what your bank account looks like. No matter what your relationships, what state your relationships are in. Jesus is the sustainer. If you put your trust in him, he will bring you through. Amen? Awesome. The last thing I want to share that this passage tells us is that Jesus is the Redeemer. In other words, it says, when he had cleansed us from our sins. You see, the emphasis here is on what Jesus did for our sins. The youth did a fantastic job sharing about communion and that the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. He alone is the one that cleansed us from sin. He alone is the one that solved the sin problem on the cross forever. Amen? A little further along in Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, there's this amazing scripture that said, With his own blood, talking about Jesus, not the blood of goats and calves. Remember how I said the the Christian Jews were thinking about going back to their Judaistic ways and to 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 go back to the religion that they had known before? Well, now he's saying, no, it's not about the blood of goats and calves, but animal sacrifice. It's talking about Jesus, that he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. You see, Jesus redeemed us with his own precious blood, his own perfect blood. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness because his blood paid the price for our sin a christian apologist called ravi zacharias gives a really great example of this 
I want to share with you this story that gives you an idea of how Jesus' blood covers our sin. He tells the story that how on November 26, 2008, a gang of terrorists stormed the historic Taj Mahal Palace Hotel in Mumbai. Some of you might have watched the movie Hotel Mumbai. It's the sto- this is the true story of what happened there. After the carnage that took over 200 innocent lives ended, one of the guests who had been at the hotel for dinner that night was interviewed by the media. This person was an Indian-born English actor. And he described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard the gunshots. Someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table. The assassins came striding through the restaurant, shooting at Wheeler until everyone, so they thought, had been killed. This man, however, found himself miraculously alive. When the interviewer asked him how it was that everyone at his table and everyone in the room was dead and yet he was alive, his answer was sobering. He said these words, I suppose it was because I was covered in someone else's blood and they took me for dead. I suppose, why were you alive? I suppose it was because I was covered in someone else's blood and they took me for de- dead. That's us, church. That we are covered, as weird as it might seem, but we are covered in the blood of Jesus. And so we are dead to sin now and we are alive to Christ. We don't ever have to live in the control of sin any longer because we are now alive in Christ Jesus. His blood that he shed on that cross that we just took communion for, to remember it, is what covers us and stops us from now having to be dead any longer. We will never face death, but we will live for eternal life because we are covered in his blood. He paid the price for our sins. You see, Jesus can forgive our sins because he was perfect. Jesus alone is God's answer to the sin problem, and he paid for it with his own precious blood. The theologian William MacDonald describes it so powerfully when he says, The creator and the sustainer became the sin bearer. In order to create the universe, He, Jesus, only had to speak. In order to maintain and guide the universe, he only had to speak. But in order to put away our sin once and for all, he had to die on a cross at Calvary. It is staggering to think that the sovereign Lord would stoop down to become the sacrificial lamb. This is the God we serve. This is Jesus. This is who he is. This is why Jesus is so important for our faith. He wasn't and he will never be just a nice guy who taught some nice things and did some great stuff, did some miracles while he was here on earth. He is so much more than that. He is the creator. He's not just the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. And most importantly for us, he is our redeemer. He is the one who redeems us from brokenness and pain and hurt and restores us back to God's creation. 
C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, made this statement about Jesus. And I really like it. It's really cool. And I've always wanted to use it in a sermon, so today I get to. But it says, I am trying, he says this in his book, Me Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Anyone here has ever confessed to being a poached egg? No lunatics here. Not at the moment anyway. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. We must make the choice. We must make the choice. You see, the writer of the Hebrews wants us to fully understand that Jesus is God. And that as God, he became one of us because of his great love for us. And that great love for us drove him to do whatever it would take, even to die on a cruel cross. Why? To restore us back into right relationship with God. There is no other way, as I read earlier, to a relationship with God than through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus, our Lord and God, invites us to have a relationship with Him. I'll close with this last scripture and I want you to consider it because the Jesus I've talked about, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer, in Revelations 3.20 makes this invitation to us because this is what is most important. And he says there in Revelation 3.20, he says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. This is what makes Jesus unique. When we talk about gods or so-called gods, whether it's Buddha or the Hindu gods or Muhammad or anyone else, what makes Jesus unique as God is that He wants to be our friend. And He has done everything required to make friendship with Him possible. And tonight he stands at the door of our hearts, knocking. Will you let me in so we can have a meal together and so we can be friends? Church, I believe it's time to open our doors. The doors of our hearts are fresh to him again. 
you, I know many of you already have done that, but it's about an attitude and a posture and a, and a way of thinking that, God, I want my heart to be open to you always. Because at the end of the day, knowing Jesus is what it's all about. We used to sing a song years ago called It's All About Jesus. He is God. And He is God's greatest revelation that we can ever have. He is the Creator. He is the Sustainer. And He is the Redeemer. And He wants to have a relationship with you and me. Can you grasp that? Can you understand the weight of that? How significant that is? Jesus who was at creation, who formed everything that we see, became one of us so that we might have relationship with Him. Let's not drift away from making knowing Him our main aim and our main goal. Church, let's not substitute service to Jesus for a genuine relationship with Jesus. You know, the stuff we do here is great and it's really important that we do what we do as a church But let's not substitute that for having a genuine relationship with Him. We can get so busy doing stuff, but the question is, do we really know Him? Let's not find our passion in what we do for God, but let's make knowing Jesus the passion of our lives. Let's not find our security in the structures and the support structures of our faith, church services, the latest worship music, the latest sermons, as good as they are, let's not put our security in them, but let's put our security in Jesus, in who He is, and knowing Him with everything we have. Church, let's make knowing Jesus the centre of everything we do. And as we do that, as we make Him the centre of everything we do, then we allow our lives to then flow out from that place rather than allow the doing to direct us. Let us know Him and then do what He would ask us to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer. And we're going to close in just a moment. But before we pray, I want you to consider that Jesus has been knocking on the door of your heart. And maybe it's a time right now where you make a fresh commitment to say, God, I make knowing you my main priority, my main goal. I make the decision of my heart to put you first in all things because you are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are the redeemer. I make you my main goal. And so right now, before I pray, and I want to pray and say a prayer for all of us, but right now, before I pray, if you say, Jesus, I want to put you first in my life. I want to re-acknowledge that knowing you is the most important thing of all, that you are the most important thing. I'm not going to get distracted by stuff anymore, but I want to know you. Before we pray, if you say, that's me, I want more of Jesus. 
I want to know Him and I want to understand who He is. If that's you in this place, I want you to stand to your feet as we are about to pray. But if you say, I want to know more of Jesus, just stand wherever you are. As a sign of your commitment and your faith and your hunger for Him. Lift your hands to heaven. Begin to open your heart to him and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Come and take control. Come and be my Lord. Come and help me know you. Begin to make it the prayer of your lives. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Look, God, I look across this room and I see hands raised. People hungry to know you, Lord God. People that don't just want to do church, Lord God, but want to know you, to really know you, to really know you, not to live a life that's half-baked or, or just about doing stuff, but want to know the person of Jesus. God, I pray right now that you would come in and, and eat with them and have friendship with them and to begin to open their eyes to the full revelation of who you are. God, I pray right now in Jesus' mighty name that you would draw them to yourself. God, open our eyes. God, open our eyes that we might see you, that we might know you like Thomas when he put his hand in your side and and touched your wounds, that he fell at your feet and said, my Lord and my God, that you are our Lord and you are our God. That's our prayer, Lord God, in Jesus' name.